Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. Hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, We could all use a reason to dance these days, but who would have thought we'd be dancing for mushrooms? Mayatake, otherwise known as the dancing mushroom, is one of the many mushrooms you can find in Boston and the surrounding area. And by find, I don't mean looking in the produce section of Star Market, but rather out in urban spaces, where lots of other edibles like wild garlic and fiddleheads grow. It's called foraging, and it has exploded in popularity, with foraging tours drawing enthusiastic city dwellers. Why has this kind of plant-based hunting and gathering taken off? And besides mushrooms, what other foodstuffs in the raw are out there? Later in the show, in the world of tech startups, the foosball table and free snacks may be a normal part of the scene, but employees of color, not so much. Author Kevin Nguyen explores questions of authenticity, invisibility, and greed in his new novel, New Waves. It's our September selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. But first, joining me remotely, David Kraft, assistant professor at Harvard Medical School and Massachusetts General Hospital, and in his free time, he leads foraging expeditions into the Boston wilderness. Welcome, Dr. Kraft. Good day. Hello. Also with me, Maria Pinto, a Boston-area writer for Grub Street, educator and mushroom enthusiast. Maria can be found leading interactive and educative foraging excursions in Boston. Hi, Maria. Hi there. Nice to have you. Also with me, Tyler Akabani, known as Mushrooms for My Friends on Instagram. He's the owner of the Mushroom Shop in Somerville. Thanks for joining us, Tyler. Hi. Thanks for having me. Well, I want to start asking each of you to define foraging so we're all on the same page, um, or at least our listeners can understand what they think you mean and what you think you mean. So I'll start with you, Dr. Kraft. You know, any I guess anytime you're picking up plants, mushrooms, algae, seaweed is an algae, um, and it's not in a grocery store setting or in someone else's fridge, so it's on a tree, on the ground. Maybe if you see a potato rolling down the street because it fell out of someone's grocery cart, that could sort of be considered foraging. Some people could consider dumpster diving a type of foraging. But I, 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 I typically do plants, nuts, fruits, vegetables that are growing, growing in the wild. Okay. Maria Pinto, what's foraging to you? Yeah, it's just basically going out and um, finding ingredients where you are. You know, no money necessarily changes hands in this context, you're going out and looking for food for for yourself. All right. And Tyler Akabani, same for you. What's foraging to you? I second what they said. Maybe the only addition is often these things are growing without human intervention. They're growing on their own uh, very often. All right. So now I'm going to ask the question that a lot of people listening to this already are saying, why? 
Why, Tyler, are you foraging? Oh. <laughs> uh, there's a long and a short answer, but I really think when you when you when you go out and you pick something and you can eat it, uh, it really taps into something. It just feels very good. It really makes something happen in the brain. Like, oh wow, and then you want to do it again. It's a it's a very rewarding experience. I'd say. Maria. I really think that uh, the minute that my head was completely turned was when I realized that you could get delicious, fresh, gourmet ingredients, that there were all of these foods that were growing on the floor for free, um, that, you know, uh, it feels like a superpower when you can sort of call your shot, you know, that black trumpets, for instance, are growing at this time of year in this type of woodland. It's, it definitely like has an addictive quality um, and it feels good to to do it. David, before you answer, I want us all to take a listen to Maria leading a foraging walk of her own. So I'm walking along my accustomed trail, probably a little delirious with insect repellent fumes because it is July in the Northeast after all. When what do I spy but a little bit of a, a flame at the base of an oak tree. Hey, Latiparis. And this one, when I saw it, I was like, mm, maybe it's lobed out a little bit too much to be tender. But look at that wiggle. That will fry up nicely. Gotta say, that did sound tasty, Maria. <laughs> Where did y'all find that? <laughs> oh, we, we have our ways. <laughs> um, uh, David, what, what's your why? Why are you foraging? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, it's a bunch of things. Uh, novelty is something I seek a lot, you know, something, some new experience. And for sure, for sure, when I started foraging, it was all novel. Every new plant got me very excited. It was very hard to take a walk with me in the woods and get anywhere because I'd be like, we have to stop right here because this is a whatever. Um, it, and it also really helps with connection to nature and just observing the, the, the land and, and around you because you're, you're now, you're now have a real reason to be looking out instead of just, I mean, it's nice to walk in the woods and not have to stare at plants all the time and just sort of take it in more Zen like fashion. But I, uh, I kind of am always seeking to learn something new and novelty. So yeah, and mushrooms is an infinite world as Tyler knows and, and, and Maria too, you know, you, you, it's a lifetime of, of learning from mushrooms. So there's no running out there. Well, it seems to me that mushrooms are the, the gateway to foraging. For some people, that's all they forage, but others are doing other kinds of uh, foraging in addition to mushrooms. So first answer that question where mushrooms appear to be what have led all of you into this new area that you enjoy so much. What is it about mushrooms, or is is it just that the mycological association has been, has been out in front touting that, hey, there are all these great mushrooms there for the taking? I'll start with you, David. I mean, the, the taste of a mushroom is like nothing else. You know, I mean, I, 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 ever since I had mushrooms as a little kid on a pizza, I didn't like them otherwise, but if I had a mushroom pizza and now every time I order pizza, it's always with mushrooms and then wild mushrooms, often like things like black trumpets, like Maria mentioned, and, and, and there's many more that have these such interesting tastes they're just, and they're sort of fascinating. You know, they're just, I'm going to, I'm going to stop because everyone's going to have something to say about this, but mushrooms are just crazy, right? You, when they come up out of the ground, they're always growing underground, but then they pop up the fruiting body and you snatch that up and eat it. And uh, they just taste great. <laughs> well, I want to point out that you've been doing this for 15 years. So you have had quite a bit of experience um, seeing them, picking them, learning about the different kinds. Do you have a favorite? 
Well, first of all, I want to mention that even though you said it's a gateway, I started with plants because I was mm. pretty nervous about starting with mushrooms. You know, they're they're nerve wracking. Right? You see a mushroom that looks like a, any other mushroom and one can kill you and one will make you very happy, you know, or, or in that way. And also just culinarily a favorite mushroom. Oh, boy. Uh, the chanterelle is pretty, pretty, pretty close. OK, so you started with like berries and you know, like stuff yeah. we would, we would leafy, leafy yeah. greens, okay. easier to identify. Right. Stuff. Okay. Gotcha. All right. And uh, of course, in this conversation, Tyler, you know, you have a whole Instagram, you know, with mushrooms in it. So obviously mushrooms are very important to you. Um, so what about you? Why were, and how did mushrooms become sort of the gateway for you and it? It, it really checks off a bunch of boxes for me. Uh, I, I love being outdoors. I love natural things. Mushrooms have a certain mystique to them of, of like David was saying, they sort of come up and they disappear and to learn how to identify them properly takes some, a lot of time and effort. And there's a little, little magic there. Um, so did you go from, I like mushrooms out in the wild to let me study them? I mean, what happened? Uh, so I was working at a school and I'd had some lingering interest before, but nothing I'd really, uh, you know, tapped into in terms of trying to eat anything. But at the school I was working, we had a very unique looking mushroom growing there called a morel. And after finding the mushroom, I reached out to a local club, the Boston Mycological Club, and someone there confirmed that it was what I thought. And I ate it and it was delicious. And then every day after working, I kept stopping by the woods to pick mushrooms or look for mushrooms. And it was sort of a snowball effect. You learn another one, you learn another one, you start easy and work your way up through other ones that take a little more time and effort to identify. And just to, it's become a really uh, lovely pastime, if you will. Well, pastime, you have a shop. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> you have a whole shop called the Mushroom Shop. Yeah, pastime events. <laughs> I mean, you know, it really exploded for you because what did you sense that uh, there were many more people with this, your same interest? Um, you know, that didn't happen until the pandemic. Uh, prior to the pandemic, I worked with a guy by the name of Ben Mallison doing wholesale. Um, and he's been he's been doing this for a very long time in the Boston area. Uh, I want to say 40 years now. Uh, but then during the pandemic, with no restaurants kind of doing business, I started doing a delivery service. And that was what gave me confidence to open a store. There were enough people who really expressed their interest and would make orders with us. Um, and that that got us here with the store. Okay. Now, Maria, you've told us earlier that you went on to study it so you knew which ones to pick and all of that. But why mushrooms specifically for you? And then have the mushrooms been a gateway to lead you to other stuff that's outside that's interesting and edible? Yes, absolutely. Um, well, I mean, I was I was a feral child in South Florida, um, having been born in, in Jamaica, where my grandmother's property was on this beautiful tropical gully where you could just reach out your window and pick fruit. Um, and then with livestock in South Florida, and then, um, you know, just being outside a lot, as um, Tyler was saying, uh, you start to notice things and you start to wonder what you can eat. Fast forward to college, I was hanging out with all the sort of radical kids. They would have like skill shares and stuff like that, where they would go on walks and, um, you know, I, I would find things like lamb's quarters and purslane, um, but plants didn't really do it for me. It didn't really turn my head all the way. And then um, a Polish friend who sort of grew up with mushroom picking as a pastime taught me the, I, I believe they're called the foolproof four. 
um, mushrooms. So chicken of the woods, hen of the woods. Some people say morels are in there and I'm blanking on the, the fourth one, but uh, I was just so floored by the fact that she was going into the woods during the fall and finding all of these delicious gourmet ingredients and having dinner parties and giving the excess to her friends and people in the community. It was very easy to sort of become obsessed that way and then realize how much there was to learn. Mushrooms are still super mysterious, even to the people who study them and who have devoted their lives um, to the study of them. So just continuing down that track and realizing that, as David was saying earlier, there's a lifetime's worth of knowledge to, to you know, take on. It doesn't really end. And it's it's a beautiful thing. And the pandemic impact for the people around you who knew you were interested in it um, because uh, you lead tours as well. Did the pandemic also work the same way it did for Tyler in terms of getting people way more interested in this? Oh, yeah, absolutely. When people realized that being outside <laughs> was, um, you know, a good way to pass the sort of long days. Um, also, I think a little bit realizing that... Um, couldn't always rely on the supply chain, like people going into grocery stores and not being able to find their staples. Um, I think really sort of something in, in folks' heads that, you know, um, if things were to go down, you might want to be able to identify a couple of things to, to be able to fill your plate. Do you agree with that, David? Was a pandemic a motivator for a lot of renewed interest? Because as we've said, this thing has just gotten really popular foraging. Yeah, I think so. But I didn't really notice it until, you know, a year had passed because in the first, you know, spring, all all foraging tours were canceled. And I think I think that's true in, in the first, you know, the first fall also. But but since then, I, I have noticed, you know, an uptick in the number of requests I get to do foraging tours. Um, hopefully this segment won't lead to too many more. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, yeah. Um, I didn't see a lot of people out, you know, the, the crazy thing about, for me about the, the early pandemic was I was outside all the time. I mean, I, I couldn't stay inside. Um, and, and I didn't see as many people out there, you know, foraging or just out there enjoying as I, as I sort of thought I would. So I was a little confused as to where everyone was, but. <laughs> hmm. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are David Kraft of Harvard Medical School, Maria Pinto of Grub Street, and Tyler Akabani of the Mushroom Store. We're discussing urban foraging and what food we can find in the wilderness around us. So let me go back to the touring um, or the leading of tours all of you do. I would like to know from each of you, um, who are in these tours? What who are the people? How old are they? Um, what brought them there? You know, I I, I think uh, I might have thought before talking to you all, seem all very normal, that <laughs> these are that you're all kind of a little bit on the woo woo side, but <laughs> if you know what I mean. So <laughs> I'm just very curious about who's in your tour, generally speaking, David, and how old are they? Um, well, I, I probably for every ten people I get, I get about one someone on the woo-woo side of things but you know as long as as long as said woo-woo doesn't talk too much it's usually quite fine um I you know I get a big range I mean I've, I've had anything from 15 year olds to 70 year olds and it's really it's really fun it's it's always somebody you know just looking for a little something more in their life usually you know maybe they're a gardener maybe they're a retiree maybe they're a school teacher and they want to and they're a science teacher or something like that so really across the board um 
yeah and a lot of people I, I often I go around if it's like 10 or 10 or 15 people I go around and have everyone introduce themselves and why they're there and I often get a couple of I'm here because you know my spouse dragged me here okay <laughs> but you know anyhow yeah uh Tyler tell me about your tours and and who's who are the folks who are joining or trying to join uh I think similarly I get a pretty wide range of ages and my my guess would be most people are coming for food reasons. Maybe people who like to eat out or, or, or people who like to do things the hard way, like people who might like to make bread from scratch or make, make dishes, you know, from like pretty simple ingredients. So what about the age range? What's the age range? I think it's similar. I've, I've had even some children on walks, uh, maybe 12 or 13 and up to 70, I'd say maybe somewhere in the middle is typical somewhere in the 30 ish range. Uh, but certainly both ends of the spectrum. Okay, Maria, what about you? Um, yeah, I, similar to, to both David and Tyler, but also kids, um, like young kids who have sort of a, you know, they're low to the ground, they're perfect height for foraging, spotting things, you know, growing out of the forest floor. Um, they love a scavenger hunt. Um, I would say that there are a lot of families coming out wanting to get their kids away from screens. They're naturalist people who are out there looking at birds who are just going to be in the woods anyway. Um, like Tyler was saying, people who have um, foodie proclivities, folks who like to do things the hard way for sure, um, from scratch people hmm. also, definitely. So when we say that this has gotten to be really popular, this has gotten to be really popular. Um, Tyler, we've already mentioned it uh, on Instagram. You're, you know, uh, quite a presence. Uh, here's TikToker Alex Nicole Nelson. She's known as the Black Forager. Oh, my God. Look at this smooth chanterelle. A great way to know it's a chanterelle is it pulls apart like string cheese. And I know this is a smooth chanterelle because it doesn't have the characteristic false gills of the other members of his genus. She's the weirdo in the family, just like me. I see y'all trying to be sneaky. This slug is going to town on this chanterelle. Happy snacking. She's pretty excited about it. And um, if you have that level of enthusiasm that coming from uh, folks like Alex Nicole Nelson, known as the Black Forager, and all of you who are very enthused about it, I guess we understand now why it's become so popular. What can you see in your own experiences in terms of the increased popularity? Are people asking you about it just outside of your tours or or are there more people in the tours? I mean, what what is the evidence that for you, this is catching on a lot. I'll start with you, Tyler, because you have a whole shop that grew out of this. So well, I guess that'd be a start, the store. People sign up for my tours. They really, they go quickly. Um, I think people are, are, you know, rather than it becoming popular, I'd say people are catching on. I feel like um, there's a lot of countries where it's really typical nowadays. And it's been typical for a very, very long time that people just go out and they look for mushrooms and wild foods. And maybe we're just late, or at least a lot of people in the United States are uh, are late to the game. So are you suggesting that, like, I don't know, Europe, Africa, other places, they've long been doing this and, and now it's a, it's kind of a new thing for us? Yeah, exactly. And I would, I would propose it to the idea that there is a very large population of people in the United States don't have uh, a long history of, of living here. And so because of that, uh, they've, they have not had passed down information of what things are good and bad to eat in our local area. Okay. Maria, what do you say? Yeah, we're we're a little bit later to the, to the game, and I think Tyler definitely hit on um, some of the reasons why. 
I think, for instance, in Haiti, there's a tradition of foraging this mushroom known as Jean Jean um, that actually grows here or a version of it grows here. And there's speculation anyway that folks from West Africa brought this tradition of foraging this mushroom to Haiti. And, you know, here in North America, if you go to a Haitian restaurant, you're, you're going to find black rice, which is this delicious rice dish that's basically dyed and flavored with, with this mushroom. So there, there are instances of people in immigrant communities bringing those foraging traditions with them. But as you might imagine, it's a little bit dangerous. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, David, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, when I when I leave my foraging tours, I often feel like the people are taking the tours and it's actually just kind of, for most of them, it's sort of something to do. It's kind of entertaining. It's fun. It takes a couple hours. You may learn a couple of things. And then, and then they kind of, they kind of go, I think most people go back to their normal ways. I do think there's a culture of fear associated with this. And for good reason, I mean, especially if you're changing from one country to the next. So when everyone flooded into America, you know, the mushrooms that may look similar you know, to something you, you may have eaten in your, you know, homelands might might not be so good to eat around here. And, and then you add to so I'm kind of going in the opposite direction, which is to say that for the reason foraging may, may not be as popular as, as one might think is, there's, there's also like, if you're foraging back in the day, you're, you're poor, you know, mm. and if, but if you're wealthy, you don't have to do that. And, and you can, in fact, buy like expensive cultivated shipped in vegetables and fruits. And so nowadays, I mean, it's there's still plenty of people out there who would be like, you're foraging. Why would you waste your time doing that? And it's not safe, you know, so it's just easier for those people to go to the supermarket. So I don't know. I'm, I, I always hear people say about this uptick in the number of foragers and foraging activity over the past X number of years, but as a scientist, I don't, I haven't, I haven't seen the data, so it's, it's sort of anecdotal to me, and I'm not convinced that it's, it's true. Mm. It, it, I, I think it comes in waves across generations. Mm -hmm. Well, I would posit, and I'll get your response, all of your responses to this, that there may be uh, two drivers for Americans now. One at the high end, the farm to table movement. You know, there the, the the basis of the farm to table movement for restaurants and foodies is know where your vegetables came from, know where your meat came from, you know, really know the folk who grow it, know how they were raised if it's, if it's uh, meat, and how was the food grown if it's vegetables. And that's a big deal for people. And the second thing is that climate change. You know, you eat less beef, that makes a change. Obviously, if you're more plant-based, that makes a change. So I think those are two drivers of interest for this any kind of activity that gets you closer to knowing where the food came from and maybe even allowing you to have agency about how you get that food. So that's that's what I posit, those two things. I'm going to go to you, Tyler, and you tell me if you agree with me. Uh, yeah, I do. Certainly the, the locavore movement feels like it moved into the, the foraging movement because even more so than someone growing it here, it's something that naturally naturally grows here all on its own. And... There's something very poetic about this idea of having a plate of food with all stuff that's come from right where you are and being able to reflect like, this is the area on a plate to some degree. All right, uh, Maria, what do you think? The, my two reasonings for why there may be more interest, even if we can't document it yet, even if it's anecdotal. Absolutely. Um, I think there's something that touches on some of that. It's almost a primordial feeling, like a, an instinctive feeling that 
seasonality, like the idea that you are picking things that are growing out of the earth now, that you're sort of more in touch with the earth's rhythms because you're, you know when to go pick that particular thing. You tap into the rhythms of the earth to know what you're meant to be eating at that moment. So like something say that grows during seasonal allergy, you know, in, in the spring, something that will help if you eat that particular plant during that particular season, it, you know, is something that your body understands. So there's just, there's, there are a lot of reasons that I think people are sort of like turning on to the idea that seasonality, lo localness, um, all of these things put us more in rhythm with the world that we're, you know, the earth that we're living with at that moment. And what about climate change? Yeah, absolutely. The fact that people are thinking more in terms of eating less meat, the idea that you're not sort of carting food in from halfway around the world, that you're getting it from literally right down the street. Um, yeah, just making your carbon footprint smaller. Um, I think folks are trying to see the ways that they eat and um, the food sources that they use as a way to live differently. All right, David, my my two reasons, uh, climate change and farm to table, what say yep, you? Yep, <laughs> I, I like your reasons. Climate change, yeah, like like Maria just said, the food miles is, 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 is a big deal. And people start to think about all the different ways. And, you know, for me, it's like, just for example, I have like two tomato plants growing on my small porch where I live in Cambridge. It's very tiny. I don't have a place for a garden. Um, and I really tre treasure those tomatoes. They come out, they're beautiful. I just had one this morning. Um, and 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 another story, just in terms of like that kind of observing the fact that our food, if we go to the grocery store, who knows where it's coming from? I mean, Whole Foods now and then says, you know, this is from Massachusetts, that's great. And then the, you walk the rest of the shelves and it's from who knows where. Um, so knowing that, knowing that that plants that grow around here don't have any food miles and and the wild plants additionally have no agricultural don't uh you know impact you don't have to be a bunch of fertilizers and you don't have to do any work um and that's not to say i don't think we could feed the world on foraging because that's that's not true and that would uh, that, that would be very that would be a very different world i mean i think we could we did do it we have done it in the past but agricultural revolution and domestication of, and cultivation of vegetables and plants was a big deal for the human race but turning away from the high tech and going back to some something like put down your smartphones a little bit and get out there and and realize the impact that all these little micro choices aggregated across the entire world of people you you, you can really see I I just very quickly I I was camping this weekend and for many years in my life like the past 30 or so I pretty much call myself a vegetarian but I'm more of a flexitarian um someone has something and I, and they want me to try it. I, I, it doesn't take much to twist my arm, but I caught two fish, this, this, um, I caught two bass and I, I ate them both. And, but it's very surreal kind of, I mean, the people out there listening to the show fish all the time, and it's not a big deal, but for me to kill two fish and eat them was like totally crazy to me. <laughs> like I just, and, and I, I, I feel like this kind of return to actually seeing where our food comes from does, does sort of, and that 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 touches on both farm to table and, and the climate change stuff. So I, I do agree. Yeah. Hmm. Sorry if I rambled there. No, I think it's very, you know, uh, this is all true. It's something that you know, we, we uh, crave if you're a foodie like I am. You want the freshest, freshest fish. Well, you can't get any fresher than that. Uh, and you certainly can't get any fresher than than uh, putting your hands around the stuff that's out there in the the urban settings where you are finding it. 
And I just want to emphasize, we've talked a lot about mushrooms, but there's, you know, dandelions and wild garlic, which I happen to love on my plate. I'm not going to get it, y'all, but okay. Uh, Fiddleheads, you know, grasses, nuts, and of course, these mushrooms. There are more than 3 million mushroom species, I've learned, uh, in preparation for this piece. So what I'm told, and you all can add to this or not, the rules of foraging are know what you're doing, do some research, and don't overpick. Leave for the animals and leave for restoration because that's the whole point of it. Would any of you would like to add to that or, or say uh, or let me know that those are the rules as you understand them? Yeah, as an urban forager, um, you know, I often pop my pop my way into community gardens and I not not for the plants that people grow intentionally, but for the weed, for the weeds, the purslane, the quick, quick weed, the lamb's quarters, the whatever you find in there. Um, I, I I feel like I'm doing a good service if I take all of those. If I ever meet somebody one day who's like, I wanted that purslane, you know, I'll change my tune on that. But <laughs> I can usually tell by the state of a garden plot. So I think for some of the urban plants, you can kind of, but but for for sure, you need to know if you're out in the woods, if if a plant is rare or not, and you should go easy on it. And I think a general rule of thumb of taking you know, one-tenth or one-eighth of whatever you see for plants. Now, mushrooms is a little different, and, and Tyler and, and Maria can speak more to mushrooms, but for plants, you know, I usually go with the take a small fraction rule if it's in, if it's in the wild and it's kind of a plant that I don't see all the time. Mm, okay. What about those rules as I've as I've laid them out, Tyler? Uh, yeah, I would say pretty, I feel pretty similarly. Um, sort of with what David was saying, there's, there's some plants that I feel you got to be really careful about. And then there's other plants, which I say go to town on, uh, like invasive weeds and things that really sort of take over and will push out uh, native crops, uh, like garlic mustard or knotweed or ones that I never feel bad about picking as much as I want. Um, and then with mushrooms, uh, as David was saying, it's a, there's a, it's a little different, but maybe kind of hard to elaborate on right now, but often um, when you pick a mushroom, they're going to keep coming back. And so it really depends. Maybe, um, there's some mushrooms, which I'll pick a fair amount of, um, or there'll be just one humongous, like hen of the woods. And generally if, if I can eat it, or if I can make use of it, I'm, I'm happy to pick like a whole mushroom. I feel like I have to elaborate. A hen of the woods could be like a 20 pound mushroom. So if you pick the one, like that's the one mushroom that's there. Um, and oftentimes there'll be a lot of them out at a particular time. So mushrooms, uh, a little bit different, but, but plants, yeah, if it's a special plant or something unusual or something that's going to be a food for a lot of other animals. Okay. Maria? Yeah. Um, I agree with everything everyone has said. Um, pick what you need. Pick what you know you'll get to. Don't, you know, do the sort of rotting vegetation in your, your fridge sort of situation um, that folks might do with, with vegetables that they've um, gotten too many of at the grocery store. Um, be considerate of the next person. You're not the only forager, especially in urban environments. Um, you're not the only one there. It's always nice to see where someone has picked something and then left a little bit for the next person. All right. Take a few and leave the rest. That sounds like a great place to stop on this conversation about urban foraging. And you all have educated me. So thank you so much for joining me. Pleasure. Thanks for having us. Thank you. It was lovely. David Kraft is an assistant professor at Harvard Medical School and Massachusetts General Hospital, and in his free time, leads foraging expeditions into the Boston wilderness. Maria Pinto is a Boston area writer for Grub Street, educator, and mushroom enthusiast. She can be found leading interactive and educative foraging excursions in Boston. 
Tyler Akabani is known as Mushrooms for My Friends on Instagram and is the owner of the Mushroom Shop in Somerville. Coming up, we all know the cliches about tech startups, the free food, the casual vibe, plus the brilliant programmers under the leadership of the Wonderkin founder reporting to the Hungry for Returns investors. Arthur Kevin Nguyen goes inside this world to ground his novel, New Waves. The novel offers biting commentary along with a whodunit plotline, which takes the book into an unexpected direction. It's our September selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar book club. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap. That's Creole for something extra. Ten years of data reporting confirm American tech companies have not moved the needle in their stated goal of increasing diversity in the ranks of its workers. Most remain overwhelmingly white spaces with a few faces of color sprinkled throughout. So it wasn't unusual for two of the few working at the fictional company Nimbus to form a collegial bond. The relationship between Margot, the brilliant African-American programmer, and Lucas, the Asian-American customer service representative, is the foundation for the edgy and sly social commentary offered in New Waves by author Kevin Nguyen. His 2021 book has just been released in paperback, and it's our September selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. Kevin Dwen is the features editor at The Verge, the Vox Media Technology News website. He was formerly a senior editor at GQ. He's written for many publications, including the New York Times Book Review, the Paris Review, the Atlantic, and the New Republic. And author Kevin Wynn joins me now from Brooklyn. Welcome to Under the Radar, Kevin. Thanks for having me, Callie. I'm delighted to have you. This is a very interesting book. Um, You got so much feedback. It's uh, rare that I get a chance to talk to the author both about the book and some of the feedback that you've been able to receive since the first publication and now the uh, paperback. But let's start at the beginning. Describe your two main characters, Margot and Lucas. Yeah, uh... Part of wanting to write this book is I wanted to have a friendship that was believable, but kind of unbalanced. Uh, So on one hand, you have Margot, who's a Black woman who grew up in Brooklyn, has never really left, uh, and just has this brilliant imagination, is a super creative force, super magnetic, and then works uh, as an engineer at a company that's obviously like trying to to quash all that creativity um, and energy that she has. And then on the flip side, she forms a strong bond with Lucas, who's an Asian-American kid from Oregon. He's kind of, I would say in in a nice way, a total slacker, you know, Uh, (laughs) kind of a pushover of any kind. And uh, they just form this great relationship um, kind of through work because they both feel so marginalized in their workplace. Um, I would love you to read, in fact, the piece early on in the book where Lucas describes himself. This is page 51. In the office, I'm assumed to be industrious, efficient, quiet, like the engine of a Prius humming along. And the strangest part of being Asian in America is that you never have to prove how hardworking you are. People just assume that you were born with a great work ethic or that your stoic disciplinarian parents beat it into you at a young age. But the truth was that in those quiet weeks after Margot died, I was hungover at my desk. 
I answered emails slowly, only half paying attention to what I was writing, waiting for the day to end. On my way home, I would pick up a six pack from Bodega across the street from my apartment and call it dinner. It was nearly enough calories to get me through. The first few days, Brandon was unusually kind. He told me to take off as much time as I needed, and I explained, I'd rather not take any. The office was a better place to keep myself occupied, which was something I said because it seemed like something to say, but I did very little. I guess we spoiled the fact that Margot died. I was about to say, yes. On in the book, so. <laughs> yes, I usually like no spoilers, but in this case, uh, that's a pivotal piece for us to be able to discuss, you know, some yeah. of the rest of the book. Or we're not going to tell you many of the other pieces because Margot's uh, death early on after they formed their bond is quite a shock to Lucas, as, as we've learned. And then there's all kinds of twists and turns that happen in the aftermath of her death. But what I wanted there was uh, just to hear from Lucas um, and for people to hear his awareness of how he is perceived by a lot of folks uh, based on the fact that he's Asian. Um, we hear from Margot throughout the book uh, in much the same way as she's assessing how um, folks are are making assumptions about her because she's a black woman. And so they have that in common, uh, but that's not the only thing they have in common. They really develop a friendship. And what you've achieved here in New Waves, your new novel, Kevin, is I thought was interesting because you have their connectedness and the themes of connection throughout your book. But it's set in this high-tech startup company, and that feels very disconnected. <laughs> so obviously this was deliberate. So talk to us about uh, why you decided to do it that way. Yeah, I worried it would be a little too on the nose, but I think it works. The company they work at eventually is a messaging company. So it's people that spend all their day thinking about how people communicate. Um, and then, of course, all the people that work there are actually not very thoughtful about the ways they communicate with each other, uh, which I thought would be, you know, like a delicious piece of irony to center the book in. And what's also interesting, too, is uh, Lucas and Margot, they meet years before on the Internet uh, on an anonymous music forum. And that's a place where you're kind of divorced from you know, obviously your physical being and in some ways your identity. And it's just like the way you speak to each other. Um, so I like the idea of like having this friendship form in what seems like a really obviously disconnected space um, and then bringing those two people together later. Now, how much did your experience, I mean, you work for a, uh, a company that's online. That's not a tech company per se. I would not describe it that way. But, you know, this is familiar territory for you. How much did that um, influence your decision to write this book or motivate it? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, before I was a journalist, I worked in tech for about seven or eight years um, at some big companies, some small companies. So I was definitely drawing on that experience a lot. Um, nothing necessarily tracks one to one, but there were just so many stories from tech. And this was kind of the era where the predominant conversation about what tech companies look like was being portrayed by the show Silicon Valley, uh, which is a show I think is very funny. But something about the show was just a little too, too loud, a little too on the nose. Um, and I kind of wanted to bring in the subtleties of the workplace a little more. I would not say the book is like sympathetic to the tech workplace, but I think it's just more understanding that a lot of the mistakes like every workplace has people that make mistakes who are selfish, um, who have things going on in their lives uh, and they make decisions. I think the difference with tech companies is small decisions can just have these huge ripple effects across a huge user base of people. Um, and so I think that's what makes tech sort of unique. Uh, otherwise, it just kind of operates like any workplace where it's, you know, people trying to get their work done, some people not really trying to get their work done, people <laughs> being petty, people having relationships. Uh, but then it's just like, it's 
I think with tech, you can have a smaller group of people and their little petty things affecting far more people. No kidding. Yeah. And this particular company, um, maybe maybe this is a, a, an issue at all of these. I've never worked at a tech company, so I can't say. But here's here's the point. Um, all the issues that we're talking about now with regard to how is data used, who owns data, uh, customer privacy, these are many of the issues that are you know, sort of churning through and around all of your characters as they uh, try to figure out, this is a startup again, um, how they're going to operate and answer the question about do, do they, uh, you know, use uh, their customers' data and if so, how and, and what's private and what's not. So these are obviously issues on your mind. Yeah. It's funny, when I started writing this book was around 2014, and uh, I think these were issues that weren't really mainstream issues yet. So I was like, this will be great. I'll put all this stuff in the novel. Um, and I think it was 2016 when the Facebook Cambridge Analytica stuff happened, or maybe mm -hmm. that was 2017. Mm -hmm. uh, and suddenly just sort of <laughs> like it was just, uh, there was a whole news cycle about how Facebook was using our user data. And I was like, oh no, you know, like <laughs> the book doesn't come out for a few more years, uh, you know. People already find this stuff like old hat, um, but I think it's still like pretty relevant. Uh, it's still a conversation we're still having. You know, it's kind of funny. Apple in particular is taking a hard stance on privacy, uh, which I think is great. But on the other hand, uh, you know, part of the reason they're doing that and doing a big, huge ad campaign around it is they're trying to torpedo Facebook, which is one of their big tech rivals. So there's there's just like there's just moves happening here on the corporate level that are both like good for the user, but really mostly good for the corporation. There's a particular little piece I'll have you read, page 98, um, I thought was very interesting where uh, some of the members of the company are, are, are trying to explore these issues. And um, at the beginning of setting up this company, at least they told themselves the story that they're the good guys and, you know, we're going to do the right thing. And now, you know, there's a little bit of discussion about, well, does the right thing impact our bottom line? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just to set this up a little more specifically, uh, it's an argument between the CEO and one of the lead engineers about um, how they should handle privacy um, since they're just under a bit of pressure. If we give ourselves the power to read people's private messages, then we're just like every other company out there, Brandon said. We're not reading individual messages. We're writing software that allows us to comprehend huge amounts of messages. No human being has to violate a user's privacy. But a human writes that software. Brandon pointed to another engineer, Tom, who ducked behind his monitor. This idea is insane. You're insane. You can't say that we're protecting user privacy if you have the ability to look at their private communications, even if it's just code crawling it. Emil, that's unethical. Ethical? You believe it's more morally justified to create a platform that doesn't protect its users from harm than it is to lightly moderate people's behavior? Not if we violate users' privacy. Like all arguments between angry men in a workplace, the disagreement became circular, then personal, then unresolvable. Neither was going to change his mind, and eventually Brandon pulled rank as CEO. His closing argument was that in the case of any future legal issues the company might have, it would be better to not have any evidence at all. The last thing Phantom would want is to have its data subpoenaed and used in litigation against itself. If no one had proof, it didn't happen. Both men marched away, pissed. They were steaming like they'd each been robbed of the most precious thing in his life, but he couldn't do anything about it. I found the whole thing hilarious. That's my guest, Kevin Nguyen. His novel is New Waves. It just came out in paperback. And it's our September selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. So there are these issues that are still very much present um, in all of our minds as we continue to consume 
the technology and use it, and these companies exist. Um, I thought it was interesting that you said you kind of looked to Silicon Valley for your inspiration. That was in San Francisco, but your book is set in New York. And I wonder, what did the setting in New York give you more or differently than if you had set it in San Francisco? Yeah, it's a good question. In some ways, you know, I, I think Silicon Valley is a great show, but I think it has a very one-note way of depicting tech. And I wanted to show something that was a little more empathetic, maybe not sympathetic, but empathetic. And, you know, New York is a place with like a huge tech scene, but it does not envelop the entire city. Um, I think that's the fun part of New York. There are just many major industries here and you're always, you know, you go to a bar and people work in film and some people work in music and fashion and tech and then they're all colliding. So I kind of wanted more of that energy in the book. Um, and I just felt like, you know, the story of the Bay Area tech scene uh, was was more familiar than the New York one. Hmm, okay. Here's something that I thought was fascinating. And, you know, I, I'll begin this by saying it's really all a matter of perspective. So many of the reviewers commented on your, quote unquote, forthright take on race discrimination in the tech workplace. So I'm an African-American woman and I read the book and those scenes resonated with me, but it didn't like stick out like, oh, wow, that's new information. (laughs) And I thought to myself, whoa, it really does depend on, you know, people's perspective on this, because this is something I'm very keenly aware of. Also want to just point out that this, of course, was set well before George Floyd's murder. And if you think about that as a sort of uh, point where some of these corporations, outwardly anyway, said they wanted to do something different and revealed really, you know, how bad things were going on inside. So there was there's a lot to consider looking at your looking at what you wrote about in a fictional way. But I would have to say the authenticity is what really drew me in. So often people sometimes try to tackle these issues, Kevin. I'm sure you know this. And it's not (laughs) authentic. (laughs) So compliments to you. But let's talk about that. I mean, you you decided that's a core piece of of this book. Yeah, actually, I really appreciate you pointing that out. um, Because I think I was reading some of... They they tell authors, like, never read your Goodreads reviews. uh, But of course, I could not help myself. Um, And a lot of a certain kind of reader was just like, wow, I'd really not thought of race in this way before. Um, And I actually don't think the book is saying anything new about racism in the workplace. Um, I think it's more of a book about how people of color respond to that and also how different people of color interact with each other. And so, you know, like even though uh, Lucas, who's Asian and Marco, who's black, uh, they find this like solidarity of feeling marginalized in the workplace, they keep running up into this thing where uh, they keep talking past each other because even though they both feel marginalized, they're just marginalized in different ways and they have different lived experiences. Um, and I think it's more Lucas throughout the book who learns that Margot, you know, was just not exactly the person he had imagined that she was and that her concerns were different and that her life was different. Um, and that, you know, all the complaining you can do about the workplace, it doesn't always, you know, as much as you want to know a person, there's just like an unknowability about them because they have just lived a different life. Well, also, it's there's a thread of to some large degree, even though they hung out a bit, it was a water cooler relationship. And yes. so they had never gotten really past the, you know, the water coolerness of it. You know, <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? <laughs> um, yeah. And I think a lot of the book, as, as readers will find, is um, Lucas making assumptions that he knew this woman better than he did. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's kind of, I don't think that gives away too much, but that's kind of the big reckoning of the book. Um, and 
I actually think that's like a, <laughs> I think it's sort of like a thrilling way to plot a book. Um, it's about a character who thinks they know something and then learns that they don't. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you know, so it's variously been described as and thought of, because I thought of it a little bit as a, a mystery. You have a thread of a mystery here because there's some unraveling about Margot and who she was um, and had a little bit of an edge to it. Then you have this sort of, you know, heist thing going on in the background because yeah. there was some possibility of that. But overall, it's just seriously character driven. I mean, you really do have um, an insight from those characters about every single thing that's going on. Sometimes people can't keep that up. They sort of begin the process and along the way we lose the characters and get on into some of these other quote unquote issues. So I thought you'd handle that very well. And it was really impressive to have the scenes in which we got to enter into their response, as you said, to other people around them. I don't I think maybe that's what got a lot of people's interest is they're like, wow, I don't I don't think I've seen that before. Yeah, I think part of it is uh, the book kind of does pose itself a little bit as a mystery. When I started the book, you know, there's kind of a very common thriller trope. And this book is not a thriller. If you're looking for that, please read a different book. You'd be really disappointed. Um, but, you know, like, uh, usually a book starts with, a like, a dead woman, right? And then, like, that murder, like, is really just about some detective exploring something or other. So I was like, what if I invert that trope where, you know, like, uh, the woman who is missing ends up being like the most interesting character and we actually learn the most about her. Um, and then meanwhile, like our detective character, who in this case is Lucas, uh, just bumbles through the whole book and he learns too, but um, he's not a great detective by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, no, that's right. It just, it's, he's just like, what happened here? And who am I? And what does it say about <laughs> yes. us and me and all of that, which I think is instructive because we ask ourselves uh, the same questions as we sort of follow him um, on his journey. Uh, you know, so we talk so much about tech affecting lives and culture, but I, I thought your book was, this is, this is culture, this, <laughs> this world they're living in. Is that going too far? No, I think that's right. Yeah, I think it's a it's a book where I didn't want to be too pointed or judgmental about the ways tech affects our lives. Like I want to be, you know, I want to be pretty sharp in the criticisms about the companies that make the tech, but in the ways that we interact with it as, as you know, as you would say, users, uh, I didn't want to be judgmental about that at all, because I think, I don't know, that feels like a stretch too far for me. Like everyone can take the tools and the software and the hardware that we have in our lives and and just do lots of interesting different things with them. And, you know, I actually think this would be giving too much away, but like some of the characters in this book do use technology uh, in ways that people might pass judgment on, um, mm -hmm. but, and, you know, in interesting and transgressive ways, but I just wanted to put them in the book in a way that was, that like illustrated, you know, how creative or imaginative they were. So now, since this is the paperback version, you've had some time to really engage with readers. Uh, what have you found that has struck them about the story again? We're not giving anything away, but, you know, just their response to it. Yeah, it has been a really cool, like, couple years of this book. Um, I just didn't expect this experience as an author because this is my first book. Uh, but I just would get, uh, especially on Instagram, strangers would DM me. And I think they were younger readers. Um, and they would always have really, really specific questions about characters, you know, mm. um, like what kind of, you know, they want to really specific things about what kind of music Margot would listen to, which I thought was very funny um, mm. as if these were like real living people and, and not just things I imagined, which was very exciting. Um, 
I think the other thing that kind of surprised me is uh, a few people said they had read very few books uh, that had a friendship between an Asian man and a black woman, mm. um, or even an Asian and a black person at all, uh, regardless of gender. And that kind of surprised me. Um, and then I kind of thought about it too. And I, I couldn't really summon too many books where that was the case as well. So um, yeah, I thought that was like a very cool reaction. That was probably my favorite reaction. Yeah, I'm. You know, it's that was interesting. Uh, I thought somebody might have that, but again, that was going to take somebody like yourself to write that because that's just not the experience of a lot of folks looking from the outside, uh, mm-hmm. particularly. I note that uh, one of the reviewers. This was was a reviewer. I don't, um, not one. Not like the New York Times or something, but just a, a maybe might have been a book club reviewer. And I mm-hmm. think this was an Asian person said she was relieved that you were not doing an immigration story. <laughs> And she wanted a central Asian. She wanted a character who was Asian, who was the central part of the story, was not immigration, and she didn't want it to be history. She said, I want a contemporary setting. So for her, you had already, you know, leaped ahead at the beginning of the book because she was like, oh, phew, <laughs> we're doing something different. Yeah, I mean, I, I read a lot of contemporary Asian-American literature, uh, you know, and I, you know, I like a lot of it, but there are certain tropes that stand out. And, um, you know, the immigration story is a big one. And to be fair, like Lucas is parents are immigrants. Um, so it's not unaddressed at all, but uh, it's not like an immigrant trauma story. You know, um, it's not about like a stoic father and like cooking with the mother kind of thing. Uh, it, Yeah, I just really wanted to write in, you know, like a chubby Asian slacker character. <laughs> Um, yeah, I love it. I think uh, that, I think it was a, a great thing. And I just want to circle back to just say that uh, just the kind of moments of flashes of brilliance to me in the book when you're dealing with racial issues. I love this particular couple of sentences. White people took pride in identifying what kind of Asian I was, Lucas thinks. When I told Margot how often this happened, she explained that white people spent an exorbitant amount of their energy saying racist things to prove they weren't racist. I thought <laughs> that was really interesting, given the kinds of discussions we're having, you know, in the world today. And and we're all self-examining. And I just thought, OK, you don't see that in a book often. You just don't. Uh, so yeah. in a novel, you may see it in other yeah. kinds of books, not in a novel. That's what I meant. Yeah. Yeah, I think that feeling, too, or that experience with white people has kind of exacerbated since George Floyd protests. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I do think it's good that, like, uh, you know, there's a certain kind of white person whose racial consciousness is, um, I would say, expanded in the past couple of years. So I I try to give people a pass like they're working through it a little bit. Right. Uh, but <laughs> at the same time. Yeah, just the stuff people say these days. Well, they wanted, you know, there are people who are trying to recognize, you know, what that sounds like and, and, you know, unintentional or not. And sometimes it just takes somebody actually reading something that's not nonfiction, but is fictional to sort of see it come off the page. So um, kudos to you for making that happen. So listen, what's going to be your follow up to New Waves? Uh, I'm working on a couple things right now. Um, I have a novel, a second novel I'm working on um, that's probably a little too early to talk about, but mm. uh, I'm actually working on the TV adaptation of New Waves right now. Oh, uh, great. Uh, so, can you say what network or any of that? Is that... Um, I'm not sure if I'm supposed to say yet. It's mm-hmm. like moving along a little bit. Um, I'm sure there'll be like a formal announcement sometime in the future. Uh, but uh, yeah, I'm working on it with... Uh, another writing pal of mine, Chloe Cooper-Jones. Um, and it's been cool just like 
turning the book into something um, that I never imagined it as. Uh, so it's 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 a good plot to turn into a, a TV thing. So that would be interesting to see. Yeah, I'm glad to hear you say that because um, when they approached me about turning into a TV show, I was like, I don't know what you're going to film. It's like people on computers and like they're all in their feelings. Uh, <laughs> <but> <laughs> they pushed ahead. Um, so it's been really fun, like thinking about the world of new waves and and adding new characters and uh, kind of delivering a little bit more on on some of the plot stuff um, that it sets up. So. Okay, well, until the TV show comes out, I always ask my authors, what do you want the reader to take away? Um, That's a great question. I don't know if I have, you know, I don't want there to be clear takeaways. I want people to come to it and interact with it and and, um, feel certain things uh, in themselves, which I think is, you know, sort of to your earlier point, uh, the power of putting something in fiction. Um, You know, I have the privilege of, I edit a lot of tech journalism full time. And, you know, there are just a lot of things, uh, a lot of kinds of truths that you can report out. And I think the power of fiction is that you can try and get at certain emotional truths that you just can't get at as well in journalism. But yeah, it's a novel, you know, it's about identity, it's about loss, it's about technology. Um, And I think the real mystery of the book actually isn't, you know, solving what happened to Margot, but trying to understand how all these things collide and what that through line is. Mm. Um, So... And I think the answer to that question is is going to be different for everyone else. But I hope everyone stumbles into the real mystery of the book. <laughs> well, that's great. Well, it's the perfect way to end. I want to thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me, Kelly. Kevin Wynn is the author of the novel New Waves. It's our September selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. It's available in bookstores and online now. That's it for this week's edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Listen to us online at GBH News or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow us on Twitter and Facebook to stay up to date with our programming. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH. Produced by Hannah Ubley and engineered by Dave Goodman. Eli Chavez is our intern. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. Listen again on Thursday and see you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday for a new episode. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening.